Welcome back. Uh, this is the Beyond Now podcast. I am George Boot. I'm the commercial development manager here at Acquired.com and your host for today. So in this podcast, I'm joined by Justin Hanna, the head of sales at Acquired.com and Chris Warburton. I'm going to let Chris go into a little bit about him and his experience uh, in the first part of the podcast. Um, <clears throat> but we cover a lot around the collections and debt collection space. Uh, there's more to come, uh, further episodes on this to cover more and more of this certain elements in more detail. But the things that were discussed in here are consumer engagement um, and customer engagement and AI. How can debt collection agencies um, and just lenders in general use AI to enhance their customer journey? Uh, we talk about the latest in terms of arrears. We're seeing arrears, you know, creep up with the current climate. Um, so we, we definitely dive into that. We talk around open banking and what different types of open banking can help a business. So AISP side, PISP side, you know, and the differences between the two. Um, and then also how can lenders and DCAs improve their collection rates? You know, can they use open banking in certain ways? Are they, are they actually using account updaters, you know, account updater services, other types of elements that benefit CPAs? You know, how can lenders, DCAs all improve their collection processes? So without further ado, we're going to get into this one. Chris, I uh, just wanted to give some context to um, the listener and equally myself and Justin. Can you just go into a little bit as to uh, who you are and what you do? Um, yep. Just so, like as I said, so that the listeners know exactly who they're hearing from and the the experience that you've got. Yes, George and Justin, I suppose. Yeah, my my background's been in um, financial services for the last probably like the the last what thirty odd years, um, and I just sort of date myself by saying that sometimes. Um, so I've worked in you know for credit card companies, worked for American Express for the longest time, as with them out in in Canada, um, and really I suppose I would say working across the risk operations process, which is basically. Uh, credit underwriting, so exception processing, fraud authorizations, um, and then looking at the back end sort of collections and recoveries kind of processes as well. So I've done that. Say working in uh, work for Amex, I work for some big banks in the in the UK, um, and I've been doing consulting and sort of advisory work for the last sort of five years, principally in the collections and recovery space. Um, really looking around things like you know strategy, um, looking at you know how that can be improved, looking at contact strategy as an example, contact channels, looking at payment channels. Um, in terms of like how can that be used to basically optimize that kind of process. Um, the other thing I've been doing for the last sort of three or four, three years, um, three, three years has really been um, some of the videos around sort of exploring, you know, some of the ideas and the technologies that are out there, um, you know, which is, you know, there's just so much that's kind of going on in the industry at the moment with so much new technology being uh, coming into into stream. Um, and there's just like a whole exploration that can, that can be really had around that. So I'm doing a video series on that, which is my ROAR site as well. Great stuff. Um, and for the context of the listener, so we're, we're joined by Chris here, but we're equally joined by Justin. So Justin Hanna is the head of sales at Acquired.com. Um, Justin, again, for the sake of everyone listening, can you just go into a little bit about your role um, and the experience in, in payments? Absolutely. Thanks. And thanks for joining, Chris. So Justin Hanna, I've been working payments now for oof, 14 years. Um, my background has been in helping out businesses really understand the car landscape. In taking payments, it's not as simple as what it used to be. And um, so I roll here at Acquired, especially 
um, with a focus on the consumer lenders and, and, and collection space. It's really understanding how can we optimize the collection landscape to ensure that not just the businesses um, looking to help with them with their challenges, but also ensuring that the consumer and the cardholders are part of everything that we do. Uh, I think the landscape is changing day by day, consumer duty, whether we like that buzzword or not, um, cost of living crisis. So our role here at Acquire is to really help businesses ensure that they're given the right payment options to, to the consumers and the borrowers and the debtors. Great stuff. Um, Chris, I wanted to get into a topic. We've got a lot of stuff we wanted to cover. I know you, as you said, um, wanted to cover some technology sectors. We were going to cover open banking. Um, I'm going to let Justin kind of chew the fat on the account update piece. But to start off with, I wanted to go into some, you know, latest trends in in arrears and arrears volumes. Um, you know, you in our in our scoping call, you mentioned that this is something that you may may want to to touch on. Um, could you just go into that and exactly what you mean by arrears volumes uh, for the context of the listener and why we're seeing them increase? Yeah, so so I'd say that so arrears, as I would describe it, is whenever someone has sort of missed a payment. So they might be that there's a penny, a penny past due, and they're basically starting to fall behind on what would be their monthly monthly payments. So that can happen in you know financial services, it can happen on your credit card, it can also happen in utilities, it can happen in you know on your gas or your energy bill, um, it can happen even with council tax and council payments, etc. So that's that's generally what the arrears process is. Um, so what happens, and I'll talk specifically about financial services, so for example a bank loan, um, is people tend to go in arrears when they have, often there's some sort of financial effect, uh, event that's happened or there's been a life event that's happened, which means that they've fallen a bit behind in their payments, you know, and they've missed the payments. And it might be that they've just forgotten, it might be there's something bigger kind of going on. Um, so often when you see sort of periods of economic stress, so periods of inflation, prices are going up, people's incomes aren't necessarily going up the same the same rate, you'll tend to start to see people falling slightly behind on some of their payments because they're struggling to en- make ends meet and that's just the, the, the reality of it. Um, and you'd expect that, you know, we've got inflation going on at the moment, there's definitely economic stress that's going on in the in the uh, in the economy at the moment, interest rates are going up, energy's gone up, food prices are going up, you'd expect the arrears levels would be going up. And actually, we've been sort of saying that we're expecting arrears levels to go up, and you heard this term, we all use the term tsunami of debt that was going to come through um, over the last three or four years. And really, that hasn't really panned out as being true. Um, and, and even as we sit here today, despite energy increases over the winter, uh, despite food price inflation, we're starting to see sort early signs of arrears levels going up but it's not a massive increase that i'm hearing basically flowing through the through through onto the uh the loan the loan portfolios um and that being said you sort of start to see it in some sectors so people who have lower income at the moment um people who are maybe a little bit more indebted there is some start to tick up there and undoubtedly some people are definitely struggling but on average it tends to be you know, it's not. It's a little bit more muted than you might expect at the moment. Um, so that's that's really what people are out out there looking for at the moment. And I think there's a lot of discussion around why are we not seeing it? Why are we? You know, what what are we actually seeing going on? And I think one of the theories that that people are talking about is well, look, you know, a lot of people saved actually a lot of money during the pandemic. Um, I mean, a lot of people saved. If you were employed, you you didn't get you didn't pay commuting. You couldn't go on holiday, and you know. Are people basically using that to basically you know, 
absorb the cost of living increases as they sit now. Um, I think the concern for, for us in the collections industry is at some point that will run out and then will we gradually start to see people basically starting to flow through and falling behind if nothing changes essentially. So that's that's kind of the theories, you know, what we're seeing at the moment, I think, really. And um, Chris. So we're in a bit of a wait and, wait and see kind of mode. Sorry, Justin. Chris, do you, do you think that maybe uh, as an industry we've not given enough credit to the debtors and the lenders out there to ensure that they've been doing their role in affordability and vulnerability checks on individuals to ensure that they can keep up with payments, holiday payments, et cetera, et cetera, to give people the break that maybe they needed? Um, sorry, credit credit to the to the customers or credit to the correct. Yeah, credit to the customer. I think I think customers are way more resilient maybe than we give them credit for. Um, I mean people are I mean I mean I mean we're all customers too, right? And I think we're all, we all consider ourselves as fairly financially savvy. I mean, most people, you know, know how to manage within within the budget. They know how to they know how to to manage their money. And I think people will find a way to basically help make ends meet. I think, as being in the industry for a long time, I think the concern is is making sure that people aren't making their ends meet by by borrowing more and making sure that is unsustainable. But I do I do think that yeah generally customers will find a way if they can find a way to either save money earn more money um or to you know look 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 for alternatives to make ends meet i mean they have to at the end of the day yeah i agree um anything to add there justin i know that's a lot we've just covered there but yeah i think the, the cost of living crisis the end of the wholesale government support um people getting back to the new norm um, when we said the new norm, you mentioned there, Chris, around people where a lot of people were able to save during COVID. Um, those that were working, um, flip that on its head, is that people that had jobs for 10 years have been told overnight they no longer had a job and you'd say about making ends meet. People have had to do what they've had to do. I think it may be a prolonged kind of process from this as to when people start struggling because they have done well, but that money will soon to run out right because people do want to go on holidays and um, people have done very well I think in prioritising debt I think where we're getting to a point now is you can only prioritise debt as well as you can prioritise debt however if your your um, outgoings are more than your um, income what do you do and that's where it starts getting a little bit more um, concerning I think as a government I think for, for, for people that have borrowed during COVID and now look to have to start paying that back. Um, and if we look around AI and how can we, as as businesses, ensure that we're doing the best for consumers at the heart of everything. I mean, if the pot's only so big, there's only so many ways you can sort of rearrange your expenses yeah. and save money. Um, at, and you can do that. You can do that a few times. But there's only so much you can do. At some point, it, it sort of runs out. And, you know, people have been looking at, so for example, you know, yeah, people might be eligible for extra benefits. That's been a theme that's, that's that's come through, and so that that might be a way that people can also then use that to get themselves back on their feet. Um, you know, but it's there's there's only so much, and I think it's just it's gradually it's it's starting to to change, and so almost like from the dis, the level for disposable income or negative disposable income is gradually going up, and so more and more people are falling a little bit uh, into arrears unless something unless something changes, and I think we've definitely got to look at the inflation rate and hope that that sort of that starts to come down, maybe even um, and we actually need prices to come down, so you, you don't need, you don't need 
inflation to still be positive, you actually needed to stop to a certain extent for prices to actually come down. Maybe reducing energy costs will help, those kind of things. But that's that's really what people need at the moment, I think. If Martin Lewis has become a lot of people saying you're right yeah. over the last couple of years, and it makes you think that how many, um, how, how many, right. so much benefits that people have not taken and the most off right now. Yeah, and and on the topic of people, customers, um, you know, I want to I want to touch on the customer engagement side of things, um, and what lenders and DCAs could potentially do to enhance that process. I mean, we, we there's a a lot of focus around AI at the moment, and it might it might be something that you're quite close to, Chris. But you know, how can AI be used to essentially improve a customer journey, or equally, how can lenders leverage and DCAs leverage AI to help their customers further? Well, I'd say. So there's been a lot of talk about AI for probably the last six, seven years, right? And um, and our understanding of AI has kind of changed over that time, hasn't it? It's gone from um, uh, robots, I suppose. Then we've been talking about scoring and uh, machine learning. We talked a bit about that. And now we're most talking about the large language models. Um, I think we should, we should people talk about like ChatGTP and BARD and that, those sorts of things. Um, I think AI is a term in terms of, you know, it's it's maths right i still see it as being maths um and it's been around for the longest time probably since the 1970s i mean the the, the mathematical techniques have been around for the longest time since the 70s um financial services in particular and you know credit risk teams have been using it for the longest time you know linear regression type models those kind of things so it's like it's not like it's new and it's almost like what's changed is the infrastructure that goes along with it is what's changed so the volume of data that's available um, the the machine processing power processing in the cloud allows us to just do to use these mathematical techniques on a much larger scale, which makes it a lot more intelligent. So I think so I think it's you know that's that's really what's changed. I mean I'm going to talk a little bit about large language models because things like machine learning is kind of what we know in terms of risk scoring. I think it's just you're just going to have more parameters to segment your portfolio. Um, you can use more data to further segment your portfolio, work out what might be happening, what might be predicted around happening. Um, I think large language models, which is the, the new theme that's kind of come through, are very interesting. And I think what excites me is the ability to be able to take a little bit more sort of like fuzzy data, sort of like language type data, and lots of different attributes, and to process that into something that's a little bit more meaningful and maybe good predictive as well. Um, I think we've got to be very careful around in financial services around it giving definitive answers because it's it's kind of like it's kind of like fuzzy logic, a bit like our own brains to a certain extent. It sort of doesn't give a, a hard and fast output. It will make mistakes. So I think that's a bit of a concern in financial services where i do think it'd be used is almost like a bit of a guide for example to an agent as an example so can it take can it take time out of the process for example for things like writing notes can it take time out of the process to even interpret real time around what someone's talking about put it into summary bullets and say well these are the questions you might need to ask next it's always got an agent or someone that's sort of in control but it gives you almost like someone sitting in the background helping you do some of the legwork that allows you to then have better decisions, better conversations, you know, talking with people and gathering extra information. So I think the next two or three years, uh, I think we'll start to see that that coming through probably in call centers, DCAs, uh, those kind of things. I, I, I don't think it's going to replace agents as much as sort of just enrich their jobs uh, a lot. 
uh, and so they can concentrate on what they do best, which is human connection and creating human connections. It's quite an interesting point there you mentioned, Chris, around AI is changing the world, but it will never have feelings. Mm. Um, and this is what we're, we're trying to enable, especially in, in the collections landscape, is uh, when a customer says one thing, what does it actually mean? Um, so as you mentioned, it's quite fuzzy when it comes to the logic of AI. You say one thing, it gives you something else. It's kind of A to B. And at what point if somebody says one thing, but the way they're saying it is where AI can real, be a real game changer. Right? Chat GPT allows you to type something out, which is fantastic. But it has to the point where you hear someone saying something and then realize that you may need to show empathy. You may need to show sympathy. Oh, actually, this customer is vulnerable because of what they're saying and the way they're saying it. At the minute, we're completely reliant on people to make their decisions. And I think there'll be a lot of people be nervous around talking into a computer for to say I'm struggling and the response you'd get from that. So it's a really interesting point you made there. AI, if you can transcript what somebody's saying to give someone an answer to come out with, great. Uh, it's that people connection. I see it sort of it's almost like a continuation of information streams. So, so if you have, I'll talk a bit about like a lettering example. A letter, I always say, is a bit like someone's shouting at you, right? So I'm going to send you a letter, and I'm shouting at you because it's a one-way communication. I'm telling you what to do, right? So that's 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 and that's the limited information I'm getting back. If I then get to to email, that's a little bit two-way, and I can read between the lines and what the email's coming back. Uh, real-time web chats, probably a little bit more information rich because there's information going both ways and I can sort of understand the way they said it. If I go to a voice call, then I'm, I'm then getting extra information. So I'm getting sort of tenor, tone of the voice, how they said, what the sentiment is, those kind of things as well. And then when you go to video chat, then you get even more information. You see what my background looks like, you know, what what that what you might have an impression really around that. And you go to live, and it's even more so. And so you almost like have this continuation continuum of information. And what's interesting about the the AIs is just like we're starting to access further and further up that continuum. So it's all like we've done we've done letter, we've done email, um, you know, we've, we've done text. You know, now we're almost like going to almost like more sort of like language, almost like live language. Will we go to video next? Will what you know where where will it sort of go? It's almost like we're going up that information and extracting that information in a way that. You know, we do as humans, but being able to do that systematically and then being able to interpret that information. And I think if that gives extra information to us as businesses to be able to service customers better, then I think that's, I mean, that's that's going to be a good thing. Um, we, you know, we obviously just need to make sure we've got guidelines around making sure that's done right. But I think it's going to help augment our experiences with, with companies. Yeah, and I think on the topic of... Um improving customer journey continuous data streams and you know kind of constantly sharing information i think that moves us nicely into the world of open banking mm-hmm. um being able to have access via you know your systems directly to consumers have that live data so i'm just going to shoot this one to quickly to justin based on obviously your knowledge around open banking could you just go into a little bit around the aisp and the pisp element of it and just explain briefly to the listeners what the differences are and essentially what open banking is as a whole. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Look, and we look at open banking in, in two completely different um, conversations around AISP and PISP. AISP, the current information service provider, what that allows uh, a consumer to do and offered it by a lender is the lender to look at that customer's 
whole infrastructure when it comes to payment backgrounds so understanding credit scores etc where the CRA may take up to 90 days to feedback from the AISP perspectives in looking someone that can't real time kind of read only access to somebody's world of finance which I think sometimes may make people a little bit nervous around somebody going in and seeing they may have put a bet on it at the weekend or they may have spent this on retail or or, or that on shopping um when they're looking to try and borrow funds. Now, where it gets interesting, if, if you want an absolutely honest answer from a lender, you need to give them as much information as possible. And people in the past maybe don't want the lender to know they've got a separate bank account with X or Y um, that maybe member of families are not aware of, right? So open banking is allowing to give a real-time um, answer on, on a consumer when it comes to lending in, in the lending world. Then we look at PISP. So PISP... Um, payment initiative service provider so what this is allowing consumers to do and lenders to do is, is to pay via a bank transfer so bank to bank account to account payments um, real time so you can actually open up your bank account via a payment page and make a payment which should be more of a, um, a personal way of making a payment and people again were nervous around sending bank um, payments to one another however we're so now uses of generation to open up our banking app to make the payment and it allows uh, businesses that are accepting pay by bank and open banking transactions is to have a reduced cost by not having to pay for card payments as it's always been in the past to to the schemes and, and the exchange fees that are associated against that so we're separating LISP and POSP and um, pure utopia I believe is that a business via AISP will be able to check if someone has the funds in the account and then request the funds via PISP, a pay by bank initiative, so they know that the customer's got the funds in their bank account before attempting for them to be paid. Um, that then moves on to kind of repairing payments. We'll touch on that in, in a little while, but around VRPs. But I think when it comes to open banking and changing the landscape of the lending industry, um, you'll be able to tell in real time before you lend to somebody what they do with their money. So when it comes to understanding the affordability and vulnerability as a consumer and waiting for the credit reporting agencies um, to give back a, a credit score associated with consumer, it allows the lender to make their own decisions, which I think is absolutely key when you look at who's going to rear prime, so prime, if you've got into arrears in the last 15, 20 days, that may not have been reported on as yet, Open banking allows you to understand in real time if that consumer is a, um, a vulnerable consumer. Maybe you shouldn't be lending to them. Yeah. Anything to anything to to add to that, Chris? I want to say, um, I, mean, I think open banking and the um, you know the count the count information services, certainly collections, has been. You know, we we're all looking at that around like, can we use that to sort of solve the I and E question? Um, I mean, for me, it feels like that has. There have been several challenges, definitely within collections, that have that have come up. One of which is, if people don't really want people to know, why would they sign up and give approval around it? Um, and so that's that's been a challenge. And so, like, so really trying to embed that within the customer journey is something that people have really tried to do. So, what's the benefit of me doing that? So, does it help me get further down an IE process that I have to do anyway? Versus, um, you know, being an, uh, like a go-to. So it's sort of like being an add-on rather than a replacement. I would say. Um, there are, there are challenges as well, definitely saw around things like categorization within um, 
account information, which is that that's been tricky. And I think it's been sort of being able to reconcile people's income and expenditure down to the nearest penny has been almost like impossible because of account categorization, what's variable, what's fixed, those kind of things. Um, however, I do think it's it's been useful. And I sort of thinking about it in a different way is how do you use that information to look at indicators of things that might be changing? So for example, a couple of ideas around, you know, have the priority of payments changed? Have there been unique transactions? So it's almost like rather than looking at the whole thing, you're looking at individual transactions and such subtle changes in behavior can actually be quite indicative of vulnerability. So for example, I changed my direct debit order or my uh, my car insurance payment goes from comprehensive down to, down to third party, as an example. Those can be indicative of things going on that actually might prompt a call and it could even be pre-collections as well so those those i think are sort of you know some of the things i know that some folks are looking at and i think that's kind of quite an interesting area around triggers that you can pull out from the um from the account information the payment information i just think dynamite i have to say and the one reason you didn't recommend there was reconciliation in the back end so one of the biggest problems people have not to sell the product but one of the biggest problem people have is i'm getting payments come in the reference is incorrectly put on the payment and it just allows you to basically attach it to the account and that's just a massive benefit outside of any sort of financial benefits you have from from transaction fees so i think that and VRPs, which I think you'll end up talking about, I think it's sort of, they're quite interesting areas around making the payment process easier for collections. And quite interesting there, Chris, you mentioned around um, re reporting reconciliation. One thing that we've seen a big uptake for our questions here at acquired.com of, of utilizing pay by bag is 24 seven payments. Hmm. And I'm receiving at uh, the cash flow. So if you're a lender or, or collector, um, and you receive the funds on 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 a weekend it allows you then to start lending back up to the market, uh, not waiting for payments from the payment process, which is definitely something we've been seeing huge increase um, in receiving payments at the weekend. It allows you to have uh, when we talk about AI, investment being able to speak to you and make payments all day every day is key. Uh, yeah. You're not then waiting on a call center member of staff to, to make that payment out, right? So it really does improve that customer service. The other bit, the other big benefit, I mean, it also think, making me think about faster payments as an example. What what sort of a game changer that's been as well? Um, you remember the days where it used to be like two or three days, and you still see this sometimes on some transactions. You know, if you're on the airline as an example, something like that, and it just takes a while for transactions to come through, and just being able to have that come through almost like instantly, we take it for granted now. But that's such a such a big change for folks, right? Absolutely. Um, same, Look, we talked about thing. this um, this Amazon Prime mindset. Um, in this generation, if somebody wants to borrow money, they want don't want to borrow money in two weeks' time. Right? They want to borrow money now. So, how can you, as a lender, ensure you're working with right providers? If somebody applies for a loan at twelve o'clock, they want the funds to know it happened one minute past twelve. Right? So, using faster payments for dispersing loans, yeah. and wanting to declare loans. If somebody's ready to make the payment, let's take the money out of the account and put it into the, the account who, who requires that payment for. And mm. we look at VRPs. Um, my honest thoughts on VRPs is we're still two three years away and hmm. um, variable rate paying payments and i don't think you spoke to most banks out there they're still not ready although we'd love them to be ready and uh, the replacement for direct debit is coming um but maybe where we thought it was in 2023 a couple of years ago probably now more looking at 2025 um purely to to replace direct debits through variable recurring payments the issue is the banks are just not ready for it um now west done some great work which is fantastic to see Commercials still not being agreed across the industry. 
we see the likes of our competitors, especially to, to acquired, um, talking about VIPs. Uh, and we are definitely excited about it too. Uh, really interested to see when the market is actually ready to adopt them for, for, for all purposes. Do you think it will replace it or will it just be yet another channel? I mean, so the history of all these things seems to be, are we going to have this new technology that's going to come in but and it's going to replace this, right? And often it just ends up being in addition to what we've already got. Uh, and I'm just thinking a lot of, there's a lot of discussion around accessibility at the moment, particularly with our consumer duty as well. And will VRPs be, you know, seem to be, or at least seem to be very, very contingent on mobile access or computer access, or, you know, online banking access, those kind of things, where a direct debit you can manage without that, right, as well. And just whether you think that is going to sort of come through as a bit of a theme as well, which is probably means that it's another channel rather than, uh, albeit a significant one, rather than being sort of a replacement. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think the job of VRPs should be across the industry is to complement other forms of payment methods to allow consumers to pay the way they want to pay. Um, whether that's direct debit, whether that's VRPs, whether that's Apple Pay, whether that's Google Pay, whether that's pay by bank. Um, as a payment provider ourselves, um, our role is to allow our merchants, to allow their customers to pay the way they want to pay. If you're only offering direct debit, um, it's going to get something that we're trying to with consumer duty and evidence that we're trying to help consumers. If you're only offering card payments, it does the exact same. So our role is to offer open banking alongside card payments. Um, VRPs will be game-changing. We're well aware of that. Uh, but there's also a reason why businesses are still integrating direct debit into their platforms because people are still used to direct debits. And yes, sometimes they are a little bit clunky, um, but by digitalizing that direct debit creation experience to a consumer, they might not actually see the difference between creating a direct debit via a digital platform to VRP. As long as the, the funds are coming out of their bank account, I don't think they'll t- see too much difference. The plus for the lender or, or, or the business is they'll save on VIPs compared to maybe recurring card payments and direct debits are always going to be cheaper but do you want to wait five days to realize a direct debit has been cancelled and then what's then the process flow to reaching back out to the customer to ask why that direct debit was cancelled as opposed to VIP which is instant it's real time if it's a VIP at three o'clock in the morning and it's cancelled reach out to the customer at one minute past three to say your payments not gone not gone through it's not been successful then a flow off the back of that you know, and, and getting and getting into that piece around, um, you know, we've talked a lot about open banking, but there is still obviously a huge conversation to have around the card payments element. You know, we talk about CPAs, you just touched on recurring payments there. Um, you know, account of data is a key thing for this sector. I know we're moving into the world of network tokens, which we'll save for another podcast. We're not going to get into that one now. Um, but for the people that might be unaware, Justin, could you just go into a little bit around account of data and what that actually means in regards to collecting arrears and, 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 and debts? Well, absolutely. So when we look at reoccurring card payments and in the lending industry, CPAs, continuous authority transactions, actually in the past is a consumer will set up a certain date for that payment to be taken out. And then that day comes and a payment might have declined. Um, then off the back of what you mentioned, the customer service, reach out to your consumer to say, really sorry, your transaction's cancelled, uh, has declined because your card has expired, um, which is painful for the call centre staff. It's painful for the consumer more than anybody. Uh, they don't want to be updating their card details all the time. So what account of data has enabled us to do is a direct relationship with Visa and MasterCard. We can update the card details on lost, stolen and expired cards automatically. 
and send the new card details back to to the business to update to be able to run through the next payment run for recurring card payment. And we look at the Netflix model, right? When you sign up with Netflix with your card details, you never have to put your card details in again by utilizing account data. Uh, we, we've worked out across our portfolio, 3% of all declined transactions are due to lost, stolen or expired cards. So our role here at Acquired is to turn them declines into automatic updates and successful transactions. Uh, which doesn't only increase collections rates, which is fantastic. It's it's then the FT off the back of that for call center staff or um, digital experience of reaching out to consumer to update card details, and we can already do it automatically for them. And I've spoken to hundreds of businesses that take card payments over the years for recurring card payments. I've never heard of account data. And for me personally, I would say it's the one biggest product that every single consumer lender and debt collection agency of taking recurring card payment should be utilising. Any anything to add to that, Chris? Is that something that you're seeing in your world a little? Yeah, I just think about my own personal experience. The number of times that you seem to get a new card that's come through, maybe there's been something something that's happened, or there seems to be suspicious spend or something like that. Um, and it is a pain to then have to go through because usually it's threatening of sort of cancelling your service or you fall into arrears if, you, if, if, if you're doing that then it's, it is a pain so being able to do that ahead of time makes is a huge benefit um, I think it's also it's probably a good excuse to probably reach out and still talk to that customer I know it saved the money in terms of in terms of that potential proactive call but I do think under consumer duty it's like we've got to think about how do we get closer to customers and use some of these things as triggers to say oh look we've just done this is everything okay those kind of things so if, if i put my collections hat on um just to make sure that it's being used as a as a trigger to do something and usually proactively reaching out to put someone be, to let them know that you've done something i think is usually uh mm. is usually a good kind of trigger because there's a reason to call and something like that so it doesn't negate the fact that it's a good thing to do but I think I'd actually see it another way around, which is it's a trigger to generate customer engagement. Yeah, that's a that's a valid point, actually. I haven't necessarily heard that kind of point of view of it, but I suppose we're kind of, you know, we do think around the whole consumer journey. And I think we've mentioned that a couple of times today around consumer triggers and how else can we use open banking you know, from a change of, uh, like you said earlier, so from an insurance policy, if that's changed, does that reflect in a certain way on the customer? So therefore, does that act as a trigger to then go and engage with that customer? That there are there are obviously so much more that we can talk about around these topics, and I think definitely, Chris, we're gonna we're gonna revisit a lot of this. Um, but we are unfortunately out of time for this episode. So, just off the back of everything we've just said, look, I'm sure people may have questions, Chris. So, is there any particular way that you prefer that people get hold of you, and where can they find you? Um, probably the best the best way is via my website. Um, we we can leave that maybe in in the comments or in the you know on the on the on the podcast. Um, but yeah, it's www.ro-ar.com. It's probably the best way to do that, or, or I'm happy to, to put my email there as well. Great stuff. And Justin, I know you're pretty hot on LinkedIn these days. Um, how 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 can people get hold of you? Yeah, sure. I, I'm Justin Hanna on LinkedIn, or please do come to the acquired.com website. I'm more than happy to speak to anybody. Um, around how they can utilize the payments today and what we can do to help with the challenges and pain points and um, to improve collections great stuff look gents i really appreciate you joining me thanks very much and we'll uh and uh take care perfect thanks guys thanks Jason.